Turn to Romans chapter 8 tonight in our Bible study. And, you know, if we really do it quickly, we'll get through the first 13 verses. I had plans to do with chapter 8 what I did with chapter 7, and that is just go through it so we could pick up our pace and finish Romans. And I was, um, I was cautioned, I was asked by one of the assistant pastors not to do that, especially in chapter 8, but to, to keep it at a slowed pace because of the riches. So uh, admonition is taken, and uh, we'll do that. When I get to chapter 8, it's the chapter where I finally go, ah. We made it. This is the place we want to camp and enjoy the great, great truths of the Scripture. This is our Emancipation Proclamation. Back in January 1st, 1863, President Abraham Lincoln, then President of the United States, signed an edict to free the slaves of the Confederate States. When he did that, he raised the level of the Civil War to a campaign for civil rights against civil problems that were going in prejudice. He signed the edict. It was ratified by the 13th Amendment, and they were on their way to freedom. 2,000 years ago, you might say, God signed our edict to free those who are slaves of sin from that tyranny. And when he died on the cross, Jesus said, It is finished. The veil of the temple was torn, ripped in two, so that men and women could have access to God forever after that. Colossians tells us that God wiped out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, and he nailed it to the cross. And now we get into our great, great edict of emancipation in chapter 8. Now, uh, the Apostle Peter wrote something that I have found to be more true in books like Romans than anywhere else, and that is, he said, our brother Paul wrote some things that are hard to understand. And Paul, in his writings, writes with great depth, clarity, but great depth. It requires slowing down because I've gone through portions of his writings and think, what did he mean by that? What exactly does that mean anyhow? It's hard to understand. This is one verse, the first verse, that is not hard to understand. In fact, it's one of the great truths of Scripture. We all love it. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. It's a great, great truth of Scripture. If Scripture were a ring, the book of Romans would be the jewel. And chapter 8 would be the most sparkling point of the jewel on the ring. It is, as was said even before the beginning of the evening, this is the high watermark of Paul's writings to the Romans. Griffith Thomas said in his commentary, and I quote, this is undoubtedly the chapter of all chapters for the believer. William Newell, one of my favorite authors on Romans, said, there is scarcely a passage in the New Testament that is more delightful reading to the spiritual Christian than this, the eighth chapter of the book of Romans. When we left chapter 7, I don't know about you, but I felt like a sailor tossed in a storm. I'm bopping up and down in the waves. I want to do right, I don't do right. I want to serve God, I don't serve God. We were left with this civil war between the flesh and the spirit. 
And we left off in verse 24 of chapter 7 where Paul said, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? On one hand, I'm taken back that Paul said this. On the other hand, I'm greatly comforted that Paul said this. Because even the great apostle who walked so close with the Lord, who gave his life in the work of the gospel, struggled as we all struggle. I want to draw your attention to something, and I could just say it, but I think it would make more of an impact if you saw it. Back in chapter 7, there are lots of personal pronouns that Paul uses that are conspicuously absent in chapter 8. And there's the presence of something else in chapter 8 that is absent in chapter 7. Look at verse 9 as an example. We can't go through all of it. We did that. I was alive once without the law, but when the commandment came, sin revived, and I died. And the commandment which was to bring life, I found to bring death. For sin taking occasion by the commandment deceived me, and by it killed me. Therefore, the law is holy, the commandment holy, just, and good. Skip down to verse 15. For what I am doing, I do not understand. For what I will to do, that I do not practice. But what I hate, that I do. If then I do what I will not to do, I agree with the law that it is good. But now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. I, I, I. He has eye disease at this time in his life consumed with himself. I believe it was a time in Paul's life when he was struggling to use the law, which was his background, his heritage, using the law and the principles of the law to overcome his flesh. And he failed miserably. It's interesting that in the entire book of Romans, up to this point, up to chapter 8, verse 1, the Holy Spirit has been mentioned only four times in the whole book four times. In fact, again, I want you to look at them. Go to chapter 1. Always helps to look at it and study it ourselves. Verse 4. Jesus was declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. The Spirit of holiness. First reference to the Holy Spirit in the book. Go to the next chapter, chapter 2, verse 29. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit. He's mentioned second time in a conspicuous sort of manner as compared to the law, not in the letter whose praise is not from men but from God. Look over at chapter 5. Verse 5, now hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Chapter 7 is the fourth time the Holy Spirit is mentioned in the book of Romans. Verse 6 of chapter 7, but now we have been delivered from the law having died to what we were held by so that we should serve in the newness of the Spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. Four times in seven chapters the Holy Spirit is mentioned, 
Now we come to chapter 8, where not only I, me, and my is not used like it was in the previous chapter, but the Holy Spirit is mentioned 19 times in this chapter alone. So now we're getting an idea of the emphasis, the problem with I, me, my, and the victory in the Holy Spirit. We see the secret that Paul mentioned at the very last verse of chapter 7. Again, for impact, let's notice as we read chapter 8. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit, of life in Christ Jesus, has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their mind on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. So then those who are in the flesh cannot please God. But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you, now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. And if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live... According to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. I've divided these 13 verses up into three easy segments. They divide naturally. The first four verses is the first segment. Verse 5 through 11, the second. Verse 12 and 13, the third of this great paragraph, verses 1 through 13. The first section, the first four verses, is our description in Christ. You are in Christ Jesus. We want to discover what that means. Our description in Christ. Verses 5 through 11 is a whole nother section where we see our differences in contrast. The difference of one who lives in the Spirit in contrast to one who lives in the flesh. And the third, the last two verses, our duty as Christians. Look at verse 1. Classic, classic verse. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And you could put a period right there and leave off the rest of the verse because in the oldest manuscripts, it only says there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, period. It is therefore thought that in the original that's how it was written. That in the original, it said, not those who walk according to the Spirit versus the flesh. That that portion was left off. That it was added sometime later. And you wonder, well, where did it come from? We think it came from verse 4. 
where it's mentioned again. The righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. How did it happen? This is how it is conjectured that it happened. The New Testament was originally written by scribes, hand-copied. They did not have Microsoft Word with all of the latest versions, spell checker, etc. They had scribes. It was hand-penned. It was copied by hand. It was passed down, much like the ancient scribes of the Jews translated the Old Testament. Probably a scribe in perhaps A, taking part of verse 4 and equating the first verse with the second verse to keep the parallel in his mind that this is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And the result of that declaration is that we're not going to walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit, that he put that in the margin. Or that he put it in the margin thinking this. Gee, if somebody reads verse 1 just the way it is, they might take that as a license to do anything. There's no condemnation to those who are in Christ. So I'd like to help God out a little bit to prevent that kind of belief system. So in the margin, I'll write the end of verse 4. So that when another scribe came along and copied that scribe's work, seeing that it was in the margin, thought, oh, he must have left it out in the translation, though it belongs there. So he inserted it in the margin, which means it belongs to the original verse. And so it was passed down. It wasn't until years later when archaeologists found older manuscripts that in those older manuscripts, they did not find the second part of that verse. So that it reads, much to our delight, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. That's why I say we go, ah. Oh. Because if it, if it did indeed say, those who walk according to the Spirit and not the flesh, there are days when you do and days when you don't. So there will be days when you feel like, I'm not condemned today. I was a good boy. I read my ten chapters. I shunned all temptation. I've walked in the Spirit perfectly. Then there are days when you walk in the flesh, not according to the Spirit, where you would not have that same experience. The Bible has good news. That's what the gospel means. We all know that. The term good news, however, the gospel, presupposes that there is some bad news. For to know what good news is, you have to be able to contrast it with bad news. The first part of Romans is all bad news. The second part is all good news. The wrath of God, bad news, condemnation. Second part, the grace of God, good news, it's good news to those who are in Christ. There is condemnation for those who are not in Christ. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. So, depending on where you are tonight, either in or out of Christ Jesus, there is good news or bad news. There's condemnation or salvation. Remember, Paul said that the same gospel that is the savor of life unto life is also the savor of death unto death. Those who are dying, it's bad news. It's condemnation. 
To the Ephesians, Paul said, We were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. That's the bad news. The good news is that if you are in Christ, and we want to discover what that means, then there is no condemnation. Now, you are, if you're a believer tonight, you're in Christ. I want to explain what a believer is and what it is to be in Christ. Before you were in Christ, however, you were in Adam. Adam acted as the federal head for the human race. You were in Adam the moment you were in this world and you said, Mama, Dada, and wiggled in your crib. You were in Adam. As cute as you looked, you had an inherited sin nature. It might not have been as evident the first few days of your life, but it soon became very manifest. Now you are in Christ, you are no longer under condemnation, but under the justification that is a part of salvation. Remember all those Asian words that we talked about the last several weeks. Notice the verse says no condemnation. It does not say there is therefore now no mistakes by those who are in Christ Jesus. There is therefore now no failure by those who are in Christ Jesus. There is therefore now no sin. No. There is therefore now no condemnation for the failure, for the mistakes, for the sin. Abraham lied about his wife to the Pharaoh. Abraham asked his wife to lie. That's sin. But God accounted it to him as righteousness. What? His faith. David committed adultery with Bathsheba. David was guilty of murdering Uriah. Peter cut off a guy's ear in the Garden of Gethsemane in anger and wrath. I've always thought it's a good thing that he was a fisherman and not a swordsman. He was a poor swordsman. He was a great fisherman. He was aiming for the guy's head. He missed, cut off his ear by the grace of God. Paul the Apostle and Barnabas argued with each other and they split their friendship over a methodological issue in the early church. In all of these instances, when sin was committed, consequence was paid. They experienced consequences for their sin, but they will not experience condemnation for their sin. Whenever we sin, we will experience now consequences for what we do. Every sin is consequence. But if you're in Christ Jesus, there is therefore now no condemnation. The word condemnation is really a legal term. It is a, it is a Greek word used only twice in the Bible, both in the book of Romans, one in chapter 5 and here in chapter 8. It's an intense form of judgment, katakrima. It's the judgment of God. It's the penalty, the penalty, the sentence because of sin. There is therefore now no penalty, no judgment, you might say, if you're in Christ Jesus. That's not new news to us. It's something Jesus talked about in John chapter 5. You're familiar with these words. He who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. We will not stand like the unbelieving world, in the courtroom, guilty for our sins. There is no courtroom for the Christian. There's a Bema seat, a judgment seat, where you will get a reward 
or not get a reward, but there is no courtroom for the Christian because you're in Christ Jesus. But there is a courtroom, the great white throne judgment for the unbeliever. Psalm 1 is, of course, not only the first psalm, but such a great psalm filled with so many truths. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of the scornful. His delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water who brings forth fruit in its season. His leaf does not wither. Whatever he does shall prosper. The ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore, the ungodly shall not stand in judgment, nor the wicked in the congregation of the righteous. They won't stand. They will fall. They will be judged. They are like the chaff that falls and the wind drives away. They will be no more with the righteous. In Christ, there is therefore now no condemnation. I want this to sink in so well so that never will you think things like this. Oh, God is punishing me. And I've met superstitious Christians. I stubbed my toe today. I got a flat tire. I had an accident. God must be mad at me. He's punishing me for something. Listen, God does not punish you, Christian. He may discipline you. Whom the Lord loves, He disciplines. It's corrective, but it's not punitive. So don't superstitiously look at bad things and say, God's punishing me. You know what? He just might be pruning you. You might be so fruitful lately. And he goes, boy, there's a fruitful gal, a fruitful guy. I want them to be more fruitful, so I'm going to send them a trial. Isn't that what it says in John? If you abide in me, my words abide in you. And talking about bearing forth fruit, whoever is bearing forth fruit, my father prunes that it might be even more fruitful. Notice the stipulation, to those who are in Christ Jesus. I know we're taking a lot of time on this verse. We might just end with verse 1. <laughs> you see that term, in Christ Jesus? Memorize it. It's used 87 times in the Bible, New Testament. It's used in an equivalent sense. In other words, not only in Christ, but in Him, in whom, 140 times. Whenever you have a phrase that obviously repeated, it is not there by accident, but by design. Small keys unlock large doors that lead into vast rooms filled with great treasures. This is one of those little keys that does exactly that. The Bible talks about you are in Christ. If any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. All things have passed away, all things have become new. There's therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Which means when you trust in Jesus, Lord, come into my life, be my Lord and Savior, I'm going to live for you, forgive me of my sins. You are placed in union with Christ. You are placed in communion with Christ. You are placed in connection with Christ. You know what that means? It means all his resources are your resources. His life is your life. His power is your power. You are in Christ Jesus. His righteousness, of course, is your righteousness. It's like a, a, a circle or a sphere, and within that circle or sphere, it's all filled with Jesus Christ, and you're placed in the center of it. 
You're in Christ. As opposed to an unbeliever whom the Bible describes as without Christ. Ephesians says they are without Christ. They are not part of the commonwealth of Israel. They are apart from the covenant of God. They are without God having no hope in this world. What a description. Without Christ, without God, having no hope. That's the opposite of being in Christ. So to be in Christ is to be a believer, to be spiritually united with Jesus Christ. That's what makes you unique, Christ. If you take Christ out of Christian, you have nothing. That is, Paul said, I know that in me that is in my flesh there dwells no good thing. You are in Christ. That is your identity now, a Christian. For the law of the Spirit, he continues to elucidate that truth, for the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. Now, don't get thrown by the word law. It's used a little differently than the law of Moses or a set of precepts. This time, the word law does not speak of a regulatory code, but a principle of operation. And I'll explain, and you'll understand, I hope. A principle of operation, an influence, a force that impels you to action. That's how the word law is used. And look at the two different types. The law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus as opposed to the law of sin and death. Within every one of us are impulses to do evil. And you might wonder, where'd that come from? That's you. That's your old nature. That's the old man. That's the flesh. All of those are synonyms. And you have an impulse to follow temptation, to sin. That's called the law, the principle of sin and death, or sin, and the result of that is separation, death. But at the same time, O oh Christian, within you is a desire to serve God. You didn't have that before you were in Christ. Now that you're in Christ, there's this new principle, this new uh, force, this new influence that impels you to say, I want to read my Bible. I want to please God. I want to serve God. What is that? That's the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. Now, both of these laws, as we saw in chapter 7, are at odds with each other. They are vying for control, and we give them control. One or the other. We are spiritually minded or we are fleshly minded. The law of sin versus the law of the spirit of life. Example, gravity is an established law. Gravity keeps me earthbound. Now I may wake up one morning and go, you know, terra firma is cool, but I want to fly. I look at those birds and I just see them get up on a branch and boom, boom, boom. they're just everywhere they want to go. I want to do that. And I'm going to do that. I've determined in myself. I'm the master of my own fate. I did it my way. And I can quote all the junk and I can get up on a building. Here goes, man. I really believe. I believe in myself. And I'll jump and I will splat. 
and I go to the hospital and I recover and say, I don't give up easily. <laughs> Eight months later, my wounds are healed and I try it again and I splat. Why? Because there's a law in operation called the law of gravity that keeps me earthbound. I can't soar. I can't fly. However, though there is the law of gravity, there are other laws that in a sense don't negate but suspend the law of gravity. So I stand on a tarmac and I see that huge 747. And I blow my mind because I think, that's a huge piece of metal. There's 51,000 gallons of fuel on it. It's 231 feet long. It has a wingspan of 195 feet, and it's going to hold 381 American passengers, who all of them overpack. I know this from experience. So it's going to carry them and their luggage. How is that possible? How is this heavy object, bound by the law of gravity, going to fly? Oh, there are other laws that are implemented. The law of thrust. The law of aerodynamics. As air courses across uh, a certainly proportioned piece of metal, that wing, and it does something to it, those laws keep that which is earthbound now able to soar. Now, I've got the law of sin and death. It keeps me earthbound. I might say, man, I want to know God. I want to please God. I want to fly. And so I try in my flesh to accomplish something that I desire to do, and I end up crying, Oh, wretched man that I am! Why did Paul cry that? Because he splatted, <laughs> trying to fly. But then he discovers, Ooh, though there is this law of sin and death that keeps me earthbound, unable to soar, there's another law, another power that comes when I trust Christ, the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus. That which I am positionally in Christ, I will have the ability to be practically in Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit and my cooperation with that power so that no longer do I have to be earthbound, but with all the baggage that I have in my life, with all of the problems up to this point, I can soar, I can fly, I can be all that God wants me to be by that principle that impels me to do that which is right. Verse 3, for what the law could not do and that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. On account of sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. What the law could not do, God did. It is done, said Jesus. It is finished. The law says do. The gospel says done. And I believe in Christ, and it's imputed unto me for righteousness. Wow! I mean, I've been going over and over this, and I still am blown away. Now, what couldn't the law do? It couldn't justify me. It couldn't make me righteous. I, I, I at one time perhaps thought it could. Paul thought it could. I'm going to overcome this fleshly impulse by the law. What happened? Splat. It wasn't the fault of the law, it was the fault of the flesh. If you give marching orders to a company of men and one of them is unable to walk, does that mean the law is bad? Hey man, change the law. It's not fair to tell somebody to march. Not everybody can. The problem isn't with the law. The problem is with this man's flesh. He's unable to do it. 
he lacks in his body the faculties, the capacity to do that. Jesus said the spirit is willing, the flesh is weak. However, in Christ, whenever a command is given, power is given with the command. Jesus said to the man who was lame, stretch out your hand. Remember that in the synagogue in Capernaum? He was, his hand was withered. Stretch out your hand. As soon as he said that, I just betcha there were Pharisees and religious people who said, how cruel. Going up and mocking a guy who doesn't have the ability to stretch out his hand. Hey man, stretch out your hand. He can't do that. But he did it. He did something impossible. Why? Because when the command is given by Christ, so also the power is given to obey the command. Unlike the law. The law failed because of the impotence of the flesh. Oh, that they had a heart within them, said God, concerning their desire to keep the law. A new principle is now at work. The power is given to be able to do it. So the law can't save you. It condemns you. God did what the law can't do, and that is save you. Remember the disciples, when Jesus said, it's easier for the camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich guy to go to heaven. The disciples said, oh, really? Uh, Well, then who can be saved? Jesus said, it's impossible. With men, it's impossible. But what is impossible with men is possible with God. Man cannot save himself. It's impossible. The weakness is in the flesh. Thus, the law cannot impart life. But what is impossible with man is possible with God. How did God do it? It says here in verse 3, God did it by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. On account of sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. He came as a man, not as an angel, as the Gnostics say or as the Mormons say. In flesh, he had a human body. He died as a man. You're in Christ. When he died, you died. And there's the law of double jeopardy. You can't suffer penalty for a crime twice. That's why God won't, cannot condemn you when you're in Christ. Man, that is, that is, that's awesome news. God did it by sending his son in the likeness of sinful flesh. He condemned sin in the flesh. One of the the great stories that I heard many years ago, I think I read it actually, is a story of a father walking his daughter out on the Canadian prairies one afternoon in the summer. And I've been on the Canadian prairies in the summer And it's vast, desolate, and very dry. Prairie fires are not at all uncommon in that part of the country that time of the year. They're walking far from home, far from shelter. It's open space. And the father notices in the distance coming toward them because of the wind a huge, open, uncontrolled prairie fire headed toward them. He knew it meant disaster. They would be killed. He thought quickly. He took out his matches and he burned a circle, a whole patch, an area, as as big, as broad as he could burn it until that fire got there. The grass was burned down. He had his daughter stand in the middle of the circle. And as the flames started coming closer and closer and looked like they would engulf both of them, the little girl screamed and cried out and thought, Daddy, we're going to die. We're going to die. And he said, Oh, don't worry. We're standing where the flames have already burned. You are standing where the judgment of God has already burned. 
in Christ, Jesus took the wrath of God on the cross for you, for your sin and my sin. Oh man, I'm sunk. No, you're standing where the judgment is already burned. That, verse 4, that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. By the way, that walk according to the flesh, according to the Spirit, is a statement of fact, not an admonition. If you're in the Spirit, this is, this is a statement of fact. You do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Notice it says, the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled not by us, but in us. Well, how can that be? Because we're, what? In Christ. He fulfilled the righteousness of the law. He lived the perfect life we could never live. He died as the atoning sacrifice for our sin, the propitiation. So in us, not by us, the law could not save. We couldn't keep it. We're not perfect. We've been declared righteous or justified. It's been fulfilled in us. Now, remember I said that positionally is one thing, practically is another thing. It is God's desire. When he saves us, we're in Christ. The righteous requirements of the law are uh, accomplished in us by Christ because we're in Christ. It's all of that identification thing. And that's positional. Now it's God's desire to take you positionally and get you somewhere practically to where it becomes a daily reality where you say no to sin more and more, no to temptation more and more, yes and yes more and more to God. That's God's desire. Battle him of the republic. That one verse, he died to make men holy and he died to make men free. He made you free the moment you were in Christ and you believed, positionally, free, now that holiness, he wants that practical walk to match the positional walk. How does it happen? By our struggling in the flesh. I'm not going to do it again. I'm not going to do it again. Here goes. Oh, I did it again. Why do I struggle, oh wretched man that I am? It's not the principle of struggling as much as the principle of cooperation with the energizing of the Holy Spirit. I know that in me, that is in my flesh, there's nothing good. Therefore, I will not depend any longer on it. But I depend on that principle of the life of the Spirit in Christ Jesus. The power of the Holy Spirit living within me. His energizing. Cars, automobiles, are propelled by the storage principle. You store fuel in the vehicle, and the vehicle takes the stored-up fuel, burns it, and propels it down the road. The old uh, electric buses are propelled by the contact principle. The contacts above the car touch electric wires, and as long as contact is made, they get propelled. I think the Christian life is like a combination of both. We must be filled with the Spirit, constantly filled. We must be in contact always with Christ Jesus. Abide in me. The word means remain in me. Have a constant living communion with me. And those principles propel us on in Christ and conquering temptation and sin. Okay, that's our description in Christ. Now, beginning in verse 5 through verse 11, and again, we'll just go as far as we can go, our differences 
uh, are seen by contrast. For those who live according to the flesh set their mind on the things of the flesh. Those who live according to the spirit, the things of the spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is hostile to God. Doesn't want anything to do with God. Walks away from God. For it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. So then those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Just a note on what we just read as a unit. Some people have looked at that and said, oh, this is uh, the contrast between two types of Christians, the spiritual Christian and the carnal Christian, the carnal mind and the spiritual mind. That is not what it's about. It's a contrast between the heathen and the Christian. And the reason it can't be a carnal Christian and a spiritual Christian is verse 9. Look at it. But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. So this is the contrast between the saved and the not saved, the saints and the ain'ts. Remember we talked about at the beginning, those are the two camps, the saints and the ain'ts, the saved and the non-saved. Now, this is going to help us realize why people act the way they act. Why do people do the things they do? Why is the world filled with such wickedness, such atrocity? The answer, the flesh. The flesh. I believe every human being is capable, every human being, of the worst possible atrocity that anyone has ever committed. Everyone is, because of the flesh. Listen to this quote by a 16-year-old teenager explaining teenage behavior. We're too old to do things children want to do. We're not old enough to do things adults want to do. So all that's left are things that nobody else wants to do. Babies have the old nature. It becomes refined as we grow. And if we get into adulthood, it becomes very dangerous. It can be disguised. The carnal man can be disguised with a moral behavior, even religious behavior. But it can be very, very dangerous. Now, verse 5 through 8 describes the unbeliever living without the Spirit as contrast to living with the Spirit, the believer. Um, I think I'll save... Uh, portion of this for next week because I'm looking at the time, but uh, the description in verse 5 through 8, that's a picture of you B.C., before Christ. As contrast to you, A.B.A., after being born again. The contrast is remarkable. Living according to the flesh, setting their minds on the things of the flesh as opposed to those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. The unsaved person lives to gratify himself, herself. Their philosophy is, what is in it for me? That is my guiding principle in life if I'm unsaved. What about me? What about my needs? How does it make me feel? How will I be fulfilled in this? I must be gratified. I have desires. I have rights. I, 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 me, me, me. That's living for self. That's the old nature. 
Now understand that God has put within each of us certain drives that are good drives. All of the drives that you have, the God-given drives, are good. You have a drive to breathe. It's such a drive, it's unconscious, you don't even think about it. It's part of the autonomic nervous system. You just breathe. You don't have to say, okay, breathe in, breathe out. You just, you breathe. You're sleeping and you breathe. And that oxygenates your blood. It continues your life. You also have a, a thirst drive. It's a good drive to have. Because if you didn't have the thirst drive, you wouldn't hydrate your body or you'd dry out. You have a food drive. You want to eat. Cells need to be replenished. You need energy to go on. You have a sex drive. God gave that to you so that you could have posterity. All of those natural drives that God gave you that are God-given must be God-guided. Though God gave them to you, He never intended them to rule over you. When the senses rule over you, you are a sensual person. I know some people like to pride themselves in that, but it's simply a person who lives by those senses, living to gratify the desires of the flesh, as described in these verses. Verse 6, to be carnally minded, fleshly minded, is death. To be spiritually minded is life and peace. The unsaved person is alive physically, but very dead spiritually. Is not alive to spiritual desires. Is dead toward God and toward the things of the Spirit. He may be moral, as we said. He may be religious, but he's dead spiritually. One time at a funeral that I performed, the daughter walked up to the open casket. It was her mother that we were burying. And I remember that this girl and then her brother came up and actually grabbed the corpse and lifted it up a little bit out of the casket and hugged it tight. It was a way of saying goodbye. It was a very emotional scene. It was a way of expressing, I care for you. And as touching as that was, it was a corpse. Insensate. Unable to respond. Unable to feel that love any longer. Hey, it looked like a person. But the person was gone. The person checked out. The unbeliever is alive physically, but then dead spiritually. The carnal man, the carnal woman, the unsaved person lives with the big questions perpetually unanswered. Why am I here? What is the purpose of life? Living in that state of death. Now, what happens to the unsaved person in this life? Who has a lot of wealth, resources? Well, he realizes, I'm not satisfied not knowing why am I here, where am I going. I don't know the purpose of life. So I must find the purpose of life, and I now have the resources to chase my wildest dreams. And that person becomes like Solomon, chasing after the wind, saying, vanity, vanity, all is vanity, wine, women, song, experiences never coming to the knowledge of the truth, never being satisfied, dead spiritually, trying to find some meaning, some life, chasing their dreams, emptier at the end than before they started. I've met so many like that. 
bitter and burned out with life. Jesus said, what is the profit of man if he gains the whole world but loses his own soul? Verse 7, because the carnal mind is hostile, enmity against God, for it's not subject to the law of God. The unsaved person is hostile to God because he thinks God is a cosmic killjoy, big party pooper. God's up there to take fun away from me. I'm not going to let him. And that person is living in hostility to God, cannot genuinely love the Lord, is not subject to the law of God, nor can be. And by the way, the last thing the unbeliever wants to do is be subject to the law of God. That's why unbelievers choose religions where they can make up their own rules. I don't like those laws. Those are too restrictive. I don't picture God that way. I picture God this way. The mother-father God. Or the God of this. They make up, they create God in their image. Because they're at enmity with the true God, not subject to the law of God. Listen to this lawyer from Washington, D.C., claims to be spiritual. Some tenets of the church add up. Some are absurd. Some are insulting. I don't need the pope or the press or some lowly cop to tell me how to live my life. Perfect picture of this verse. Not subject to the law of God. Impossible for that person to love God. They might say, I love God. They do not. They are living like those in the book of Judges. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. So then, verse 8, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, you know why that's horrible? Because that's the purpose for our creation. Did you know that you were created not so that you could be happy, but so that you could be holy? It's not about you. It's not about your happiness. It's not about your fulfillment even. Now, I know we like to say, come to Jesus and you will be happy and fulfilled. But it's not even about that. You exist for one purpose only, and that is to bring God pleasure. Revelation, for thy pleasure all these things were created. God made you for his purpose, for his pleasure. So that if God designed us for that reason, but those who are in the flesh cannot please God, that means those who are unsaved can never come into the conformity of the purpose of God for their life. They'll never find the meaning of life. They'll never know what the purpose of life is because the purpose of life is to please God. And they will always be frustrated living to please themselves. It's only when they live to please God that they find fulfillment. It's an odd, ironic thing. When you say, I'm not going to live for me anymore. My life is sold out to you. Wow, I'm so happy. I'm so happy not pleasing myself anymore. I'm actually happier pleasing God because that's the purpose of creation. But those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Simply understood, if you cater to the impulses of your old nature, that which is opposed to God, there's no way you could please God dominated by the flesh. Now, I know this angers people. They read or they hear this verse. They might even hear it now or listening by radio and go, that makes me mad. Because I think that everybody has a spark of good in them. Everybody is a child of God by birth. No one is a child of God by birth. You're only a child of God by the second birth. Nicodemus, you must be born again or you will never see the kingdom of God. And I feel I have to press this point because 
Lately in our counseling, people have come into the counseling offices and the pastors have said, man, this counseled somebody today. They've been coming here for six months and they're not even saved. They don't, don't, don't know what it is to be born again. Well, let me tell you, unless you're born again, you will never go to heaven. Ever. Ever. Ever, ever, ever. I want to make that clear. You say, how can you say that? I didn't say it. I'm just quoting it verbatim. Jesus Christ said that to a religious man. Unless you're born again, you'll never see the kingdom of God. How do you get out of that which is carnally minded as death? By being born again. And that new operation, that new principle begins to work. By the way, it's easy to disprove the theory that everybody is good. Just have children. And I don't say that facetiously, and I'm not saying that. You who know me and my relationship with my son, I love him deeply. And he acts just like I acted as a kid. We all have a flesh nature. A second way to prove it is look in the mirror. All of us have the same drives and propensities, though we may deal with it a little bit differently. Paul said we are by nature not the children of God, but again, the children of wrath, even as others. David said, I was born and conceived in sin. In sin did my mother bring me forth. I was born with a sin nature. And now we contrast that with the believer living in the Spirit, verses 9 through 11. We can simply touch on it, then we have to close. It's too bad because that's the best part of the study. But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. If anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. If Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. Next week, we'll look at the description of the spiritual person, the one born again, changed by God, and what that means. Um, to be carnally minded, as he puts it here, to be unsaved and not have the spirit, is the lowest form of life. Well, no, it's not. My professor said the amoeba was. It's the human without the Spirit of God, without the spiritual life within him. It's the lowest form of human life. Because when you live only to please your flesh, there's no difference between that and an animal. That's how an animal lives, by instinct. It gratifies his flesh. It's hunting time. I go kill the animal and eat it. Uh, it's mating time. There's a lioness. And if you live to gratify the flesh, you are living on the level of an animal. Now, here we are, a nation decrying the violent acts of students, the violent acts of men across the ocean like Milosevic and others. How can people do that? It's insane. And it is. It's horrible. But we have become a nation where we have told these students, you evolved. You are an animal. And so now they're acting like what we in our public schools have told them they are, and now we're blaming them for living like we have educated them. 
What's the truth? We've been made in the image of God. And all men are sinners by nature and by choice. And you must be born again. You want to see lives change? You don't hire more psychologists in the schools. You, you preach the gospel to people. You change the human heart. And tonight, if you're not changed by the Spirit of God, then your life is doomed to this cycle. Oh, I did pretty good. Oh, wretched man that I am. Doing a little better here. Oh, wretched man that I am. And on and on it goes until you finally go, I thank God for the power of His Spirit.